We're starting a new series on the book of Revelation. It's titled uh, End of the World Series. The book of Revelation is a very tough book. Not many preachers venture on doing the series of this book because this is one of the most difficult, the most controversial, and the most complicated books in the Bible. Um, what we want to do is to study this piece by piece every week, and my prayer is that we will find encouragement as we preach on the book of Revelation. When you come on Sunday, it's not the usual sit back and relax, see a movie. It's not that anymore, because we have to take this very seriously. This is a, a very hard study, but we will try our best to make this as simple as possible. And the simplest I can think of, actually this week I've been thinking, how can I possibly simplify the book of Revelation. The simplest way I can think of to describe the book of Revelation is halo-halo. Halo-halo. You know, the, you know it's, it's a Filipino delicacy. It's usually served in tall glass. It's layer upon layers of uh, sweets, of potatoes, sweet potatoes, uh, banana, jello, uh, sago, you know, the colorful stuff, the sweet. And, and on top of that is, is a, a thick layer of ice and then smothered with milk and then leche flan on top and sometimes ice cream. It's yummy. It's good for summer. Sometimes it's usually presented in a bowl. You go to Lutong Pinoy, it's in a bowl. But the properly, proper way to eat it is that you have to hollow, hollow. <laughs> you have to mix it first because you cannot pick you know, one cassava cake, one, uh, one vine to another. You have to mix it to be able to appreciate the halo-halo. You, you got to try it. It's good. The book of Revelation is like halo-halo because there are phrases and words and pictures and images that's in the book of Revelation that you can also find in the Old Testament. So when you read the book of Revelation, you are in fact reading the summary of the Old Testament. That's why I said it's, it's like halo halo. Now last week we talked about the destruction of the temple. It happened in 586 BC. And there were prophecies regarding the return of God's presence to Jerusalem after that. Some 50 years after the destruction of the temple, the first batch of the Jews went back to Israel. They tried to rebuild the temple. After four to six long years, they were able to rebuild the temple. In all those years, they were waiting for the presence of God to come back to Israel. See, although they rebuilt the temple, the second temple, the inner sanctum was empty. There's nothing in there. See, the first temple, the inner sanctum was full. There's the Ark of the Covenant and there's some articles in there. But the second temple, it was empty. And they know and they can feel that the presence of God was not in there. But prophets like Daniel and Zechariah and Isaiah and Ezekiel are all prophesying that Yahweh will soon return to the land of Israel. And they were waiting for it. Until about 5 BC, an ordinary Jew from an ordinary family was born. His name is Yesu ben Yosef, or better known as Jesus has nothing to do with Kuya Joseph Pumilban, his father. is also Joseph, but it's Yesu ben Yosef. That's his name. And for 30 years, he lived like an ordinary Jew. He was doing nothing extraordinary. Until finally, he decided on his 30th birthday, he decided to start a career. 
He went to the Jordan River. He was baptized by John. And they started preaching about the kingdom of God. And when he was preaching, he said that the kingdom of God is near. What he meant by that is that God is back in Zion. God is back in Jerusalem. And so the people were asking, where is God now? The temple is still empty. What he's saying is not that God's presence back in the temple. What he's saying is that there's something else that's happening here. And so what he did to demonstrate that God is back, he started making miracles. He started healing people. He started casting out demons. He started multiplying bread and feeding the people. And the least, and the best I, I would say that he did was he started forgiving people of their sins. Now, why is this important? Because you see, in the Bible, for you to be able to repent and be forgiven of your sin, you will have to bring a lamb or a goat, go all the way to the temple in Jerusalem, go to the priest, have the priest slaughter the animal, and ask God for forgiveness. Jesus was going through all the land in Israel, and without lamb sacrifice, without goat sacrifice, without blood, he was saying, you're forgiven. It was like Jesus was acting like God, forgiving people of their sins. Are you with me? Now, this is not heavy stuff for now. But then, after three years, he was challenging the high priests, the authority of the high priest, and so he was arrested. And when he was arrested, he was accused of threatening to destroy the temple. He was actually not threatening to destroy the temple. He was prophesying that the temple will be destroyed by the Romans, although he did not say the Romans, but there was a prophecy, Luke chapter 19 and Matthew 24, that the temple will be destroyed. And he was accused of threatening to destroy the temple. You see, for the Jews, the temple is their identity. Without the temple, that means nothing. Without the temple, circumcision means nothing. Without the temple, being a Jew means nothing. The temple is tied to their identity as a Jew. And so if Jesus is saying that the, the temple will be destroyed, it's like saying you will be annihilated. This will be the end of your world as a Jewish nation. And so he was brought to trial, and he was executed as a blasphemer, somebody who claims to be divine. To the Jews, he was executed as a blasphemer. To the Romans, he was executed as a rebel king, sedition. On top of the cross, there was an inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But the point is, he was executed. He was crucified, and then he died, and then he was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He rose from the grave. Now, what's interesting is that after he rose from the dead, this is what he said. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does it even mean? What does he mean when he said all authority, not just some, not just parts of, he said all authority has been given to me. What does it mean? This is the context to properly understand the book of Revelation. That Jesus has the authority and no one else. See, in the time of the Romans, the emperor is the representation of the will of the gods. We're talking about the pantheon of gods. Emperor is the representation of the gods. And so for Jesus to say that he has authority, all authority on heaven and earth, is to challenge the authority of the Roman emperor. 
And that is scary for the Jewish people because they want to maintain the peace. If they go against the emperor, the, the Romans will come and destroy the temple. So they're trying to make peace with the Romans. But Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me now. And that is a direct challenge to the Roman emperor. Here's the thing. When you look around today and you see random killings, you see rape and incest, you watch the news and there are floods and earthquakes and hurricanes. And you might probably be asking, where is this authority of Jesus? Is God in control of what's happening here? During the last two years of the pandemic, some of our loved ones passed away. And there's this nagging thought, but I think it's not sacrilegious to ask an honest question. Where is God when all these things are happening? I think it's not sacrilegious to, to ask, where is Jesus' authority both on heaven and earth when all these things are happening today? There was a story. Hold that thought. I'm going to answer that. But there's a story about Elisha the prophet, not Elisha the singer. He's much older. He looked old. Uh, he looks more like Elder Edwin, okay? Elisha the prophet. So there's this story in the Bible about Elisha the prophet. He went to a city with his servant. And, and during the night, the whole Syrian army surrounded the city because the king apparently was mad at Elisha, the prophet, because he was helping the king of Israel. So in the morning, his servant was having coffee, and he looked outside, and he saw the mountains full of chariots and horses and soldiers of the, Rome, the Syrian army, and he panicked. But then Elijah said, 2 Kings chapter 6, 16 and 17, Elijah said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. This is amazing. His eyes were open to the other reality, to the heavenly reality, that it's not just the Syrian army, the army of the Lord is more than the Syrian army. See, the difference between Elisha and his servant is that Elisha can see the other reality. Some people call it the third eye. It's not really the third eye. It was God who opened his eyes. And so Elisha prayed to God. God opened the eyes of his servant, and he saw that there's something more. He saw the other reality, the heavenly reality. Now, we might be thinking that the heavenly reality, heaven, is thousands of miles away upwards to the north in another galaxy. The reality is so much closer than you think. They were able to see, this guy was able to see the host of angels from heaven. And so come to think of it, where is heaven now? The book of Revelation is like it's like God opening our eyes to the other reality. So when you read the book of Revelation, your eyes are open that there is another reality beyond what you just see. When John was writing the book of Revelation, he had vision. The vision is another word for saying God opened his spiritual eyes. And so he said in Revelation chapter 1, 1 to 3, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore 
witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep that's written in it, for the time is near. This is exactly the introduction of the book of Revelation. But this is a vision. Let me put this in perspective. When this book was being written, the emperor during that time was Domitian. Domitian, like any other Caesars, they demand to be worshipped. Emperors are worshipped in Rome. So Christians during his time can either resist or compromise. If they compromise, it's because they're afraid to die. Because they want to live the peace of Rome. So they compromise. They one day worship Jesus and another day worship Rome, uh, emperor of Rome. But they can also resist. And if they resist, there's a big possibility that they will be arrested, executed, and even killed. This is what the church has been experiencing during the time of John. And so John was trying to tell them there's another reality, and the reality is that Jesus is in control because he has the authority both in heavens and on earth. You might be arrested. There are killings everywhere. There is persecution, but it doesn't nullify the fact that Jesus has the authority both in heaven and on earth. And he said a very cryptic, cryptic uh, sentence found in verse 7 that we might get confused. Let me read this for you. He said in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, this is very interesting. To the untrained eye, if you are Bible savvy, you've been reading your Bible, you might think that this is about the second coming of Jesus. You might think, to those of you who are not familiar, if you read this, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. You might be thinking that there's some guy coming from heaven, riding on the clouds, coming down to earth. That's not the case. Why? Because what John is doing is hollow, hollow. Remember that? He was taking phrases and words and images and pictures all the way from the Old Testament to the book of Revelation. What he just alluded to were two prophets in the Old Testament from Daniel and from Zechariah. Let me read to you Daniel. Daniel said in 7.13, he said, I saw in the night vision. So both of them saw a vision. And he said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Same thing. Somebody coming from the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Look at Zechariah 12.10. He said, I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Exactly the same phrase that John wrote in Revelation 1.7. Combined together in Revelation 1.7. This is amazing. But this is confusing as well and disorienting. I, I remember when Jollibee opened up Pembroke Pines sometime last year. Was it this year or last year? Last year, correct. There were uh, Americans who tried the Jollibee spaghetti because we're legendary for our spaghetti. Right? Anyone tried Jollibee spaghetti? Awesome. Awesome. Cool. When the Americans tried Jollibee spaghetti, the first time they tasted it, they were disoriented because it's sweet. 
I mean, spaghetti here is not supposed to be sweet. And when they tried it, it's yummy. It's sweet, but it's yummy. It's disorienting. It's the same here when you read Revelation 1-7. It's disorienting. We all thought that the one coming in the clouds of heaven is coming down to earth. It's really not the case. The case is both prophets were prophesying the return of Yahweh to Jerusalem. What Daniel was, uh, was saying is that in his vision, instead of a man coming down on the clouds of heaven, going down to earth, what he was trying to say is that there is a coronation going on in heaven. There is this son of man ascending to heaven, presented to the ancient of days, which is God, given authority, dominion, and power. It's not coming down, it's going up. What Zechariah is saying is that the return of Yahweh to Jerusalem will be marked with repentance, the national repentance of Israel. That's why there's mourning and everything. So both of these prophets, quoted by John, alluded to something that is, that is mysterious, but again, it's like halo-halo coming from the Old Testament. It's something to do with the return of Yahweh to Zion. But what John is trying to say is that, you see, we are suffering persecution right now. We are suffering death. We are experiencing tribulation. But know that Jesus has authority both in heaven and on earth because he, the Son of Man, has received authority already based from Revelation 1-7. This Revelation 1-7, the he there is Jesus Christ coming on the clouds of heaven, receiving authority, coronated as king, not just of earth, but the whole universe, the heavens and the earth. In fact, if you think about it, Emperor Domitian implemented Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome. So while he was emperor, there's peace in the land. So when Jesus was saying, all authority has been given to me, he was directly challenging the peace of Rome. What he's saying is that there's really no peace because it's forced on you. Either you bow to Caesar or you, you bow to Jesus Christ. And if you don't bow to Caesar, there's no peace anymore. So Jesus is directly challenging Caesar at this time. Christians can either resist or compromise. Apostle Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, he said, the just shall live by faith. He was quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. It's also a, a very interesting passage because when he said, the just shall live by faith, it's not about Christians professing their faith and saying, today, I will believe in Jesus Christ, he is my Lord and Savior, but tomorrow I will believe in Emperor Domitian. See, that is not faith. The context of faith that Paul was talking about is the faithful allegiance. It means every day you are giving your allegiance to Jesus. You don't stop your allegiance to Jesus. You don't say, I am loyal to Jesus now, but tomorrow I may not be. That's not allegiance. We call it in Tagalog, balimbing. That's different. See, faithful allegiance is the proper context for faith in Jesus Christ. Now pay attention to, to verses 12 to 16. You know, there are people who, who went to the hospital and they did not make it. And there's this, uh, like a computer in the hospital where your heartbeat is monitored, right? Medical professionals out there, you know what I'm talking about. You see this in the movies as well. And... They know that you're still alive because there's some graph in there. But when it's flatlined, it means you're dead. 
And there are people who flatlined in the hospital, but after a few seconds or after a few minutes, they would revive. And they would say crazy things about what they saw. Some people would even say, uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. Any, anyone heard about those people saying crazy things? Yeah? And they would say, I saw some, some things that are unimaginable. See, the book of Revelation is like that. John had a vision, and he cannot explain it properly. There's no identifiable reality in the physical universe. So he was speaking like he's crazy, but he's really not. Now, what he saw is what also Daniel saw 600 years apart. Let me read this for you, Revelation 12 to 16. He said, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Again, this guy appears. Cloth with long robe, golden sash around his chest. Hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came two sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's unimaginable. There's no reference in reality where this guy is. He's uh, describing. Now, I'd like you to notice that this son of man appeared again. Robe, sash, white hair, eyes like fire, feet like bronze, voice like Pavarotti, like many waters. Now, I tried to make a composite image of this guy, what he was trying to describe. And all I can think of is Gandalf the White. And I'm sure that he's not even close. This guy that he described is the same guy that Daniel, 600 years apart, described as well in a vision. Listen to Daniel. He said, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen, same thing, with belt of fine gold from upas around his waist, body was like burial, face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, arms and legs like gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Same description, same vision. What I'm supposing is that they saw the same guy, the same son of man. And the son of man that they both saw, John said in verse 8, Revelation 1.8, he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and we have the clue who this is. He says, the Lord God. And his description of the Lord God is who is, who was, and who is to come. And then there's these two words at the very last. He says, the Almighty. Well, he's almighty for a reason. He cannot be almighty if only rules heaven and not earth. He cannot be almighty if he only rules part of the universe. He can only be almighty if he rules the heaven and the earth. Are you still with me? The, the Roman pantheon of gods. Zeus uh, rules the sky. Hades rules the underworld. Poseidon rules the sea. And there are many other gods who rules the mountains and the desert, but the emperor, the Roman emperor, rules the land. If, if God is saying he is almighty, he must rule the heaven and the earth, the whole created order. So either God is almighty or he is not. Either he is Lord of all or he is not Lord of, at all. Would you 
give your allegiance to a God who only rules part of the universe? Would you give your allegiance to a God who only rules the land but not heaven? Or heaven but not the earth? You would not. You would give your allegiance to a God who rules heaven and earth. Well, what's interesting here is when he said he is who was and who is to come. John said in verse 17, when I fell, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Again, this is confusing and disorienting. How can this Lord God Almighty died and is now alive again? How is he almighty and die? The only explanation is that John, if this is the Apostle John, he knew of only one person in history who died and after three days rose again. It's Jesus Christ. You see, during the time of Jesus Christ, Peter, James, and John went up to the mountain and the Bible said he was transfigured into a very bright light. He saw a glimpse of who Jesus was, who is, who is to come. What he saw there was what he saw in the vision, and what Daniel saw in the vision. This is Jesus, God Almighty. He was talking about what he saw. You know, Jesus, before he was crucified, he prayed a very lengthy prayer in John 17. He said this very enigmatically. He said, I glorified you on earth. He was praying, talking to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, he said, Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What does it even mean for Jesus to ask the Father to glorify him? Glorify me in your presence is what Daniel saw the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, going and meeting the Ancient of Days, and be coronated and given power, dominion, authority. This is what Jesus was praying. Bring me there again vindicate me I am the king who now rules the heaven and the earth so when he said all authority has been given to me he's not kidding it's true he rules the heaven and the earth see there must there must have there's something that must have happened between his experience in the wilderness and his resurrection from the dead when he fasted for 40 days, at the end of 40 days, the devil came to him. He brought him to the top of the mountain. And the devil said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you must bow down to me and worship me. As if implying that he owns the kingdoms of the world. But then Jesus said when he resurrected from the dead, all authority now has been given to me, including the kingdoms that Satan was saying. So there must have something happened between the wilderness experience and the resurrection of the dead. Jesus now has authority over all. During the time that he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, there were mob that arrested him. And then his disciples panicked and Peter took a sword to try to defend Jesus. But then Jesus said this to Peter, Matthew 26, he said, Put your sword back into its place, 
For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How many are 12 legions of angels? 72,000 angels in chariots and horses. 72,000. It's like the servant of Elisha, eyes were opened, the heavenly reality is all around him. See, heaven is not far away. The heavenly reality is here. We just have to open our eyes and see. Jesus is not just some God that you can choose from a smorgasbord of gods and demigods. He is either the God, the Lord, or not at all. He is not just some a competition or alternative to Vishnu or Krishna or, or Buddha or Kaishin. You know Kaishin? You go to a Chinese restaurant or Chinese establishment, there's this bald guy smiling with big tummy, gold. It's Kaishin. Kaishin is the god of money of the Chinese. This is interesting. During Chinese New Year, Chinese would greet each other. Kong hei fa zai. You heard that? Kong hei fa zai? It's not Happy New Year. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have no business saying that to one another. Kung Hei Fatsai. Kung Hei Fatsai is not Happy New Year. Kung Hei Fatsai is may Kaishen bless you, make you rich. Google it up. What I'm trying to say is that if a Chinese guy wanted to become a follower of Jesus, this is personal for him. That means for a Chinese guy to become personal, he cannot appeal to Kaishen anymore to make him rich. He is accepting the fact that Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. That is allegiance. It's personal. The opening words of Jesus to John is, fear not, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. He said, fear not. And then he said, I died, behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. What does it even mean? He has the keys to death in Hades. Now, to understand that, we have to open up Greek and, and Roman culture. There's this belief by the Romans and the Greeks that when a person dies, he doesn't just disappear. Or he is not reincarnated like what the Hindus believe. He doesn't become a dog or become a cow. When a person dies, he enters the underworld. He passes through a gate, is guarded by a three-headed dog named Cerberus. You saw that from Harry Potter, the big dog with three heads, that's Cerberus. He lets people in, but he doesn't let people out. That's Roman mythology. And then he's judged. If he's found okay, he will be going to Elysium. Elysium is like paradise. If he's found corrupt and sinful, he will go to Tartarus. He will be tormented forever. When Jesus is saying, I have the keys to death in Hades, he's saying, I rule the sky, I rule the underworld, I rule everything, the heavens and the earth. You may die, but death is not the end of you. Death is not the end of the world. I will free you up because I have the keys to death in Hades. That's what he's trying to say. To say that, he's saying, I have authority in heaven and earth. Now, we come face to face with poverty and sickness and corruption and injustice every day. So we might be asking, where's this authority in heaven and earth? There's this confusion about what Jesus said in John chapter 3. I came that you might have life and have it 
abundantly? Some Christians are thinking, ah, Jesus came that I might have life. So their understanding of a normal Christian life is healthy, wealthy, and good-looking. That's a wrong interpretation of the text. Jesus did not even promise that. But Jesus promised, if you follow me, you will suffer. What he said is that, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. That's the normal way of life for a Christian believer in Jesus. To be healthy, to be prosperous, and to be good-looking is not the norm. It's an exemption to the norm. See, Christians in China right now are suffering. To them, this is real. Persecution is real. We are, I would say, blessed here in the United States. But you see, during the last two years, as a Christian, we are a minority here. We cannot speak the truth because truth will discriminate. We are barred from speaking the truth in public forum. They will cancel us for telling the truth about how sinful man is. Why? Because we are being, it's not physical persecution, but we are being persecuted for telling the truth. We are in persecution. And for us to believe that Jesus Christ rules the heaven and the earth is to be able to believe that He's real right now, that what's happening is under control. For us to say that Jesus Christ rules the heaven and earth is to believe that there's no accident in life. If anything that's real is this, death is uncertain. Death is certain. No matter how, how healthy you are, how secure you are, how expensive your insurance is, death is still certain. Because death doesn't discriminate. It doesn't discriminate between the healthy and the sick, the rich and the poor, the young and the old. It can come anytime. And for the persecuted believers in the time of Rome, death is very scary. If they resist, Anytime they can be arrested, they can be tortured, they can be burnt alive, they can be eaten by lions. But to them, it's a choice. It's a choice to either compromise or remain loyal to Jesus Christ. And why would Christians remain loyal to Jesus? Because they believe in their heart that Jesus rules the heaven and the earth. So my question to you is the same. Do you believe the same truth? Will you open your eyes to see there's another reality out there? This is not just some empty words. For Jesus to say, all authority has been given to me is pregnant with meaning. What it means is that our departed loved ones is not there in Hades permanently. We will see them again. When we die, all of us, maybe 50 years from now or 100 years from now, we'll all be gone. We will not be forgotten. We will not be stuck in Hades in the grave. The Bible said we will be resurrected from the dead. Believe it. Jesus rules the heaven and the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the encouragement. We may not have the luxuries in life right now but we have the promises of Jesus that in the last day we will be resurrected from the dead we will escape death because he has conquered the grave father I pray that you will make this reality true to us today 
Help us to see, to touch, to smell, to feel that this is real. This is not just some figment of imagination. Allow us, Father, to open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, so that we can see where you are right now, reigning in heaven. Stephen saw you in his vision, and he saw you. You were standing at the right hand of God. You were reigning in heaven. And not just in heaven, not some, some faraway place, but you're reigning both in heaven and earth. So that when we pray your prayer, may his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying and proclaiming that you are Lord of all, both in heaven and earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.